You're listening to locally produced programming created in KUNV Studios on public radio, KUNV 91.5. Please be advised that the voices and opinions you may hear do not necessarily represent the views of KUNV Las Vegas, the University of Nevada Las Vegas, or the Board of Regents of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Run for them life when I step into the jungle. Said they wanna group up. They better move up. Never gonna win a Royal Rumble. But when I come through, you know what I love to. I send shots for your team and leader. I make a witness decide. Welcome to another episode of the Chemical Collective. The Chemical Collective offers you your weekly dose of drug facts while dispelling fiction. Today we're talking about the practice of taking the stimulant, betel, and some of its effects on the brain and society. So to start with, can you tell us what betel is and where it comes from? Well, the interesting thing about betel is it comes from many different places. Mostly it comes from Asia, Africa, and some of the Pacific islands. It's really popular in Papua and New Guinea right now. It's part of a palm tree. So you, typically it's used uh, as a nut, the reca nut. And this is what you make uh, into what's called the quid. Traditionally, it's used as a stimulant. Uh, an upper gives you increased energy and wakefulness. It's also had a lot of reports of mood stabilization, making people feel happier. Um, the prep is made with leaves sometimes of the betel vine, but almost always it's that areca nut, um, and it's mixed with other things that we'll talk about to get some of the alkaloids out of it. Okay, so to clarify, a betel quid and a reca nut are the same? Like, can you expand more on how betel is prepared or used to get its stimulant effects? Yeah, so the areca or betel nuts are used to make what is called a betel quid, or lump. And so this quid is made by taking a fresh betel leaf from the tree, spreading a paste of slaked lime or tuna, which is a white paste made from powdered oyster shells or coral, on the leaf and then placing a small amount of the betel or areca nut in the center of the leaf. And then from there, the betel leaf is folded and sometimes secured with a clove or cardamom pod to make a small packet. This quid is chewed or held in the mouth with the saliva and juices from the quid often being spat out. And one of the things to think about, too, is it kind of comes like a coconut, again, being from kind of the palm family. So the coconuts that you see in the store had a green big husk on it. And really what you're trying to get at is that inner nut part. And that's part of the quid and the betel all together that you're making the paste out of. Okay. Are there any variations or additions that can be added to the prep? Or is it usually made like the same way each time? Different regions have different additions. One thing that typically is done is that you add something that's highly basic. By basic, I mean on the pH scale. One of the most common things to add, uh, as Haley has already said, is lime. Um, and lime doesn't mean lime like lime juice. Lime is like sodium hydroxide. And so this is one of the major variations in that some people use actual slake lime, some people use roasted oyster shells. And then how you put it in your mouth is kind of different, again, region. Some people use uh, aniseed, cinnamon pod, cardamom pod. Probably the most common is a mustard stalk or vine that is dipped into the slake lime and then made into this quid, this paste that gets chewed. Okay, so you just said region. It makes me wonder, like, um, are there region-specific um, ways to prepare it? Do you have, like, examples of how betel is prepared in a different culture? Yeah, there are variations in the way betel is prepared across different regions and cultures. So in some parts of India, a variation called pan is popular, which includes additional ingredients like coconut, makwas, and saffron. 
And then in Indonesia, battle preparations called siri or sira may include ingredients like gamber. And now that, you know, we have obviously international trade and this has become very prominent like most drugs do, people are kind of shopping around. So I know that the Indian um, betel or quid can be sweeter. So some people prefer that and some are more pungent. So people are now kind of shopping all over to get different betel nuts. Hmm. A big part of this show is discussing how drugs integrate with culture. Um, and when I think about how drugs are typically taken kind of like in social settings with others, is there a rich history of this but with betel use? Can you guys expand on maybe some of the cultural and social aspects of betel use? Betel is definitely seen as, by the people that use it, as a cultural drug in that one of the main properties people talk about is its ability to increase hospitality. So it causes social bonding, increases uh, connections between people. It's also kind of seen as, you know, a wealth of status or, um, you know, some way to, to make your host make the person in their house feel good. So I, I don't know. Anecdotally, I think of it as like somebody comes over and you kick them, uh, you cook them one of the best prime ribs ever or like a lobster tail. It, it's kind of seen like that. So it's a social lubricant um, also, right? So again, those social connections, kind of like we use alcohol in our culture. Um, you have a couple of drinks before dinner. Um, so highly cultural. Yeah, or like making a cup of tea or something. Absolutely. Okay, got it. Um, what about its use as maybe traditional medicine or maybe in ceremonies? Yeah, so it's also used for medicinal purposes to treat a variety of coughs, colds, and skin diseases. So the arecana itself has been used as a treatment for various conditions like dysentery and asthma. And so regarding traditional ceremonies and rituals, it's believed that betel has spiritual and mystical properties, and it was used in offerings to deities. Okay. Okay, so after chewing betel, a betel quid, um, how does it work? in the brain. This, this is always my favorite part. <laughs> I'm always excited once we get to the brain. So uh, the short answer to this and something that's, you know, a common theme is it works in many different ways. So if you go online and you Wikipedia, you're going to find out that, you know, it works on alkaloids. And as we said in the past, that's how most drugs work. So the major psychoactive alkaloid in the nut is arecoline. Um, this seems to work mostly on a group of receptors called the muscarinic receptors. These are cholinergic muscarinic receptors. And we talked about previously that there's two types of main receptors in the brain. You have that ionotropic that's fast passing ions, and then you have that slower, more modulatory G-protein coupled receptors. So this is part of those G-protein coupled receptors. There's a lot of evidence for arecoline, again, working on the muscarinic system, but there's also a lot of proof that it works on the opioids, which again are things like heroin, how they make you feel. And there's also lots of GABAergic innovation. So GABA is kind of the major inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. So the short answer is, it's kind of a dirty drug. It works on many different things. And those are typically the drugs that are super addictive and people like a lot. Hmm. So from what I'm understanding, the arecoline is a muscarinic agonist, right? So can you just Correct, expand yeah. a little bit on what that is? Yeah. So a muscarinic agonist is a compound or ligand or molecule which activates activity of the muscarinic acetylcholine receptor. And so once these receptors are activated, it can regulate processes like attention, learning, and memory. Hmm. 
Can you explain more about these muscarinic receptors and maybe like what you were alluding to earlier, the cholinergic system? Yeah, so there's really two classes. There's the G-protein muscarinic and then the ligand-gated nicotinic. So a lot of people report that they take nicotine with this drug and also this drug is hitting the same kind of receptor. So it's, there's a high concordance between taking betel and then smoking or smoking and then taking betel. Um, so the cholinergic neurotransmitter is made up of two major classes of G-protein coupled muscarinic receptors. Um, so drugs like pyrocarpine, scopolamine, these all act kind of on the exact same receptor, this G-protein muscarinic receptor. Mm. Are there different types of muscarinic receptors? Yeah. So by the use of selective radioactively labeled agonists and antagonist substances, five subtypes of muscarinic receptors have been determined. And so these are named M1 through 5, so M1, M2, M3, so on. And M1, 3, and 5 receptors are coupled with GQ proteins, while M2 and M4 receptors are coupled with the GIO protein pathway. And this relates to their ability to transmit signals. Yeah. So again, remember back to that G-protein coupled receptor. Those are type of class that when the ligand, you know, that's the active ingredient that betel binds, something in the cell, a small protein, a signaling protein, a second messenger is kicked off. Interesting to me that there's two different types. You have both the GI and GQ. That shows again, this is a compound that's able to affect a lot in the, the cellular space of the brain. Hmm. Okay. So Muscarinic acetylcholine receptors are coming more into focus, but what about some of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors? Can you talk to that? Yeah, well, the first thing to do and to clarify this again, nothing acts alone on a single receptor. So for this battle, it appears that it's going to favor the muscarinic receptors, but still there's going to be some activation of the nicotinic. And so nicotinic acetylcholine receptors or receptors respond to acetylcholine when it binds. And nicotine is one of the ligands that can also bind or act as what we call an agonist to increase the effect. These are found in central peripheral nervous system. That's to say they're everywhere. When I think about acetylcholine, I almost always think about something called the neuromuscular junction. And this is the space where your nerves touch kind of the muscles. So many of your tissues in your body use this receptor. Okay. Um, and sorry, yeah. on that too, it's important to note that, you know, these drugs aren't working just on your brain. They are. Um, you kind of have three brains. We always talk about this, right? You have your brain brain proper that we always talk about. Then you have your heart and then you really have your uh, enteric system, your guts. And so it looks like these are really working on the peripheral nervous system, part of your ganglia. And they're also working on parts of your, you know, your intestines to make them kind of signal and contract. Um, similar to the muscarinic, I'm curious now, do, do the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors also have different subtypes? Yeah, they do. So invertebrates, nicotinic receptors are broadly classified into two subtypes, so based on their primary sites of expression. And so there's muscle subtype nicotinic receptors and neuronal type nicotinic receptors. And again, uh, as Haley said, this is in vertebrates. So we have a vertebra, we have a spinal cord, that that's us. It's important to think about this because evolutionarily, most of these plants didn't make a drug that made us feel good. They made a drug for invertebrates, that's things that don't have a spine, things like insects that come along and nibble them, to again, stimulate those muscles and slow it down, put them to sleep, make them feel maybe not so well, 
so that they wouldn't want to continue to eat the plant. Or in some cases, maybe in the betel nut case, uh, because it is a seed, make the animal take this nut into its body and then transport it somewhere else so it could be planted. Kind of fascinating how plants kind of taken over both vertebrates and invertebrates to pass on their own genes. Yeah. Okay, so we've mentioned the receptor systems that betel quid use can activate. Can you guys just like briefly summarize um, kind of the sequence of events that happens beginning to end when you start to chew it to actual effects that we're going to get into? Yeah, so when betel is chewed, arecoline first activates muscarinic receptors in the salivary glands, and this is the most overt indication of betel quid use. Um, arecoline is then absorbed through the lining of the mouth and into the bloodstream where it can cross the blood-brain barrier and enter the brain. And then once it's in the brain, arecoline acts on both types of acetylcholine receptors as well as other types, dopamine, serotonin, GABA, which hopefully we can talk about more later. Yay, GABA. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and then activation of each of these receptors in combination appears to be related to developing, reinforcing, and habit forming the addictive effects associated with betel quid or arecanut chewing. And then effects of betel quid on the brain are complex and can vary depending on the individual, the dose, and other factors. So some of the effects of betel quid on the brain include increased alertness, heightened mood, and increased cognitive performance. However, the long-term use of betel quid can also have negative effects on the brain, like addiction, cognitive impairment, and increased risk of neurodegenerative diseases. You mentioned that the activation of like salivary glands and um, that these cholinergic receptors are also expressed across the body. What are some examples of how betel affects um, maybe specifically just the body? Yeah, so earlier I said, you know, it affects the parasympathetic nervous system. And this mm -hmm. is really that outside of your brain kind of a part of your body. Haley just talked about how, you know, we get this increase in salivary production, again, outside the body. So when we think about our ganglia, we have all these little kind of mini brains throughout our body that kind of inform what's happening at the tissue level. This is really where betel is working. So one of the first things people report, uh, especially first-time users, is this profuse sweating. So you just start to sweat all over. Your body's kind of trying to get out the poison. And then within this, um, you get this contraction of other tissues. And one of the tissues that contracts are the muscles in the eye. So you get this pupillar constriction. Um, some people talk about their heart racing. I haven't seen any good evidence on that as far as papers, etc. But it kind of makes sense when you have that parasympathetic nervous system activation. Now I'm starting to see how betel use can impact both the brain and body, but I am really curious, what are some of the positive and negative effects of chewing betel? Yeah, so chewing betel has been associated with both positive and negative effects on health. So some of the positive effects of betel include alertness, improved mood, and a feeling of relaxation. And then as far as digestive aid goes, the alkaloids in betel can also help stimulate production of digestive enzymes, which aid in digestion. And then it also has anti-inflammatory properties. So some studies suggest that betel leaves have anti-inflammatory properties that may be useful in treating conditions like arthritis. Yeah, and I'm always kind of not intrigued, but curious when we talk about the digestive aids, because, you know, this is like eating a whole bunch of jalapenos right? You can't call that a digestive aid. It's going to speed things up, mm -hmm. right? So uh, again, I think we need to see more re research on that. There are a lot of negative effects of chewing betel. The first one that I want to bring up is that 
it is likely one of the most addictive drugs, plants on the planet. Um, so again, in that nicotinic family, muscarinic receptors, nicotine is a drug that is highly, highly addictive. Hopefully I don't have to tell people about that. Uh, this is more so. Um, it often gets betel, uh, this rap, which is true, that it causes all kinds of uh, cancer. So it's a, it has carcinogenic properties, mostly on the mouth. Again, I suspect that isn't from the betel. That's probably from the slake lime. So you're putting sodium hydroxide, which, you mm. know, we also call drain cleaner. And you're trying to do this to, you know, irritate the mucosal membrane, the membranes in your mouth, so that the drug gets into the bloodstream faster. Again, with that slake lime, um, Papua New Guinea, where this has taken storm, there's a, a recent um, paper that came out showing that you know, over half the people of Papua New Guinea are addicted to this. And because of that, this mouth cancer and tooth decay and gum disease are on the rise. So highly addictive, all kinds of other health risks. Um, people have reported mothers that are addicted to this have lower weight babies. These are kind of indices, A, that this is a potent drug and, and that it can be misused very easily. Hmm. Are there any studies or any thoughts on how long the effects of betel actually last? Yeah, so the effects of betel can last anywhere from 30 minutes to several hours, depending on the individual and the amount of time and frequency of use. So chewing betel can produce a mild, strong stimulant effect, which can include feelings of euphoria, heightened alertness, increased heart rate and blood pressure, and a sense of well-being. And these effects typically begin within a few minutes of chewing and can last for one to three hours. Yeah, and a lot of that research that you just cited is from this Panka et al. paper that maybe we can put in some of the notes for the show. But the blood pressure and all this kind of comes out of that, that, you know, it's massively affecting your body and your body systems. Um, one thing we didn't really get into, uh, we just kind of got into a little, was, you know, how this kind of spreads. So the starting signal, obviously, is the acetylcholine and the nic nicotinic muscarinic receptors. But, you know, this is also acting on uh, serotonin, dopamine, and also GABA. Wow. Um, I'm really curious about that. Uh, can you speak a little bit more to um, what might make this drug be used recreationally? Um, and further to that, where we uh, might see that, because I know earlier we touched on some of the social aspects of betel, but it's still being used recreationally. Yeah, it's being rec used recreationally a lot. And I guess the easiest way to say why it's being re used recreationally is that it's a potent drug and it's available. So if you look at places, for instance, like India, um, where marijuana grows readily, people have been using it for thousands and thousands of years. So most of the areas that we mentioned have the betel palm there. And so it's a traditional medicine, but then obviously when something's a medicine, it gets used recreationally. Hmm. Um, would you say that it's as effective or as strong uh, as other recreational drugs? Because you just briefly mentioned the potency. So I'm curious if that's something... Yeah, so that's a, that's a difficult thing to get into. I, I mean, all drugs have potency. Um, I would say it has some mild effects um, compared to, say, things like cocaine or amphetamine, but much stronger than things like tobacco. Um, that doesn't make it a better drug. That just means that the effects hit different targets. Okay. What makes it less potent or what does... Um have to do with addiction, for instance. How does addiction to betel compare to addiction to some other stimulant um, or even depressants like alcohol, for instance? 
Okay. Yeah, so there's some evidence to suggest that betel might be less addictive than nicotine, but it still has addictive properties and can lead to dependence with long-term use. Um, we mentioned earlier that it contains the arecanet, which releases alkaloids that have a mild stimulant effect on the central nervous system. These alkaloids are similar to the ones found in nicotine, which is a highly addictive substance. So research has suggested that the addiction potential of betel may be lower than that of nicotine. Mm. Yeah, and, and just to, to point out here, nicotine is probably one of the most, if not the most addictive substances on the planet. So to say something's less than nicotine doesn't mean that it's safe just means it's kind of in the ballpark of nicotine, but a little less. Very true. Um, that makes me wonder about the use of betel, not only in a social setting, but maybe in an individual seeking perhaps therapy. Can betel be used to treat things like depression or addiction? Well, um, people are self-medicating with this, right? And it becomes one of these, again, when you have a recreational drug uh, quandaries that we need to understand more about. So for instance, you can treat, not effectively at all, your depression with alcohol. We call that alcoholism. It's not a good thing. Yeah. And it starts this vicious cycle where you're depressed, you drink. Then when you drink, you have this GABA rebound, you're more depressed, and then you drink more. So Betel's probably in that same GABAergic category where people are self-medicating with it. Um, but I don't think that it's solving any problems like mm. most drugs, right? Um, it's, it's probably just, you know, prolonging the issues that need to be dealt with at the time, whether they be biological or, you know, physical, psychosocial. Okay. Let's circle back real quick to Bettle's role in traditional medicine. Um, can you provide some examples um, or some scientific evidence maybe to support its efficacy? Yeah, so there's some anecdotal evidence supporting the use of betel in traditional medicine. Um, there's limited scientific research on its efficacy. So some studies have investigated the potential health benefits of betel, but results have been mixed and more research is needed so that we can fully determine its effectiveness. I was curious if you guys could uh, just briefly summarize some of maybe the health risks associated with betel use. I, I know that we touched on a couple already, but just like speed quick. Yeah, for sure. Some, some of the repetitive things that we talked about earlier that seem to be coming up with betel are these oral health problems. So anytime you chew something, put it in your mouth a lot, it's not good for you. Even chewing gum causes problems. Um, so oral health problems related to mouth cancer, gum disease, these, these are kind of foremost and in the forefront. The other ones are cardiovascular problems. So betel has been used associated with increase of cardiovascular disease, including heart, uh, heart attacks and strokes, all kinds of digestive problems, um, problems with it creating ulcers in the gut. Um, I don't know, again, if this is betel, and we're putting this wrap on betel. It, it could be more to do with, again, that sodium hydroxide, that lime that we're putting on. Addiction. This is for surely one. These receptors are known to be highly addictive, and betel contains all kinds of substances that we've previously known are addictive. Um, so whether this addiction is fully just physical or psychological, uh, we're not sure yet, but definitely it has this uh, addictive pro uh, pro problems. We just glossed over it earlier. One of the big studies, again, that we mentioned earlier has shown that there's all kinds of complications that come out of pregnancy, of which the biggest one is lower birth weight. So again, as I always say, a lot more research is needed, but there are a bunch of very huge caveats with this drug. 
Is betel legal to consume in the United States or is it regulated like other substances? Yeah, so in the United States, betel is not a controlled substance, but some of its components, such as the arecana, are classified as controlled substances under the Controlled Substances Act. Arecaline, an alkaloid found in the arecana, is listed as a Schedule Four substance. So that means that it has a low potential for abuse and a limited risk of dependence. And then the sale... and Which, imp- which sorry to interrupt, if you think about it, that shows us a paucity in the scheduling, right? That if, if we've said that this can't be addictive, yet all the stuff... And it's just we haven't got ahead of where the addictive natures of this drug are yet. Yeah. Yeah. And so the sale and importation of some metal components may be restricted, but the plant itself is native to the U.S. and it's not commonly grown or sold here. Um, some betel-related products, such as betel nut or betel leaf, may be imported or sold in specialty stores. And it's important to note that while betel is not le- illegal in the sale and distribution of certain forms of betel, such as betel quid, are restricted in other countries due to their health risks. One of the countries, two countries that I always look to in drug regulation um, that seem to be ahead, at least in my opinion, um, well, I'll add three because I'm Canadian. One is Canada. <laughs> Um, two others are Portugal. Portugal has done amazing things um, to decriminalize certain drugs, and in that has kind of helped a lot of the problems with addiction. Another one is Thailand. Thailand has really jumped on board with plant medicines, and Thailand has said with betel, this is a bad drug. Um, so that's something to think about, too, when we look at what countries have you know, classified it as a controlled substance. Yeah, that was definitely going to be my follow-up question with other countries. Thank you for touching on that. Um, But it does look like we do still have a little bit of time to answer some questions that we received from students here at UNLV, specifically regarding Betel. You guys ready? Yes. Okay. Um, The first one is, is it possible to overdose using Betel? Yeah, absolutely. So... When I think about overdose, the first thing I think about is something called an LD50. LD50 is the lethal dose that 50% of the, you know, in, in many cases, lab animals you would have would have serious problems with it. It does have a significant LD50, meaning you absolutely can overdose on betel. Um, overdosing looks like, you know, having nausea, vomiting, dizzy, confusing, uh, confusion. And then this leads to typically some uh, very big seizures and then even coma. Um, and again, you know, if you're not hitting the dose uh, high enough to overdose, which I hope nobody ever does, you know, having a significant dose over time can also cause problems leading to, you know, death very quickly. Okay. This next question looks pretty interesting too. Um, what are the economic implications of trading betel and how does it impact the communities where it is grown and consumed? Yeah, so betel trade has significant economic implications for community where it's grown and consumed. And so some of those implications are employment, betel cultivation and processing provide employment for many people, particularly in rural areas, and this can contribute to local economies and improve livelihoods. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you guys so much. It looks like that's all the time that we have today. Um, But thank you for the great discussion. Thank you, and and thank you for listening to Chemical Collective, where you get your weekly dose of drug facts while dispelling the fiction. Run for them life when I step into the jungle. Said they wanna group up. They better move up. Never gonna win a Royal Rumble. But when I come through, you know what I love to. I send shots for your team and leader.